Welcome to CNN Slate. The name CNN Slate pays homage to our ancestral ways of knowledge sharing. Sienna, taken from the color of clay, used as a writing tool and a medium, and slate referencing a blank slate or a chalkboard, a stone. These are the stories that don't get told anywhere else. Through a collective of deep conversation, storytelling, sage advice, we celebrate the interconnected aspects of genius, resilience, scholarship, and well-being. Hello, and welcome to CNN Slate. I'm Dr. Keo, and in this episode, I share this space with Dr. Rose Oslin. Dr. Rose is a transformational life coach, educator, academic, and breathwork facilitator. She is the CEO of Compassion Flow Coaching. She works with people to help them get unstuck in their life, learn tools of embodiment, and bring more joy into their lives, along with healthy boundaries and understanding of themselves. After recognizing that she was in a state of constant burnout and imbalance, she decided to quit her job as an associate professor of Islamic and religious studies in California. She now resides in Instable with her eight-year-old son and two cats. She enjoys living a slow life full of rich experiences and intentional presence. She's a certified life coach and received her PhD in Islamic studies from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill and her master's of arts in Arab and Islamic civilizations from the American University in Cairo. She has written many academic publications. She's now actively writing and vlogging from the heart on social media and elsewhere online. Welcome to the show, Rose. I'm so glad we were able to connect and have you as a guest. Likewise, Q, and it's a really big pleasure to be here. Absolutely, absolutely. When I met you through social media, I said, "Oh man, I have to I have to speak to her. I have to see what what's going on in her world." Yes. So after reading your bio and speaking to you just uh before the the recording of this show, right? So we talked a bit about your academic experiences and how you got here. Mm-hmm. Uh would you mind sharing a bit of that and how that influenced your journey? You can start from the beginning if you feel the need from to. From the beginning. Oh dear, where do you start when you're an academic <laughs> who started as a as a bookworm and a nerd when you're a child, right? Um yeah, I mean, just to start with, I've always been someone who devoured books and was so curious and was asking the big questions since I was a really small girl. Um, really. And so it made sense for me to, you know, pursue my undergraduate degree in a topic that I was just passionate about and so curious about, which was religious studies. Um, So my undergraduate master's and PhD all were connected to the study of religion, um, primarily, and then my master's and PhD more focused on the Middle East and Islamic studies as well. Um, And I really just fell into that because after my bachelor's degree, I was living in Cairo. Um, I had been on a Fulbright scholarship to study Arabic at an advanced level. And then I was working for a year in Cairo. And I felt like I wasn't receiving a lot of respect because I only had a bachelor's degree. And I just determined at that point that I needed to get at least a master's degree. And I really enjoyed uh, the research, the classes. It was just an amazing experience to live in a city um, that held so many of the treasures I was studying, you know, so I would take an art history course and on the weekends we would go on field trips to some of the ancient mosques and churches and synagogues that we were looking at. Um, and then when I was doing my research project, I got to visit all the archives and manuscript libraries um, for to find all the sources I needed for my 
master's thesis, for example. And mm-hmm. once I got really deep into my master's thesis, I was like, there's it's just logical to go into my PhD program. And there was just one program I really wanted to go to, and, and I really wanted to study a specific subfield in Islamic studies. And so that's why I went to University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill uh, to really pursue this specific mm-hmm. niche. Um, at that time, I was um, studying Sufism, which is mystical Islam. Um, but also I went to Chapel Hill because at that time there was two professors who were very engaged in public-facing scholarship, which was pretty mm. rare for Islamic studies at that time. And they both had popular books that reached beyond academic audience and they're blogging and on the news. And, and that was one of the main reasons I decided to go there because even though I've always been uh, a book lover, and I love spending time in the archives and my in the in the stacks in the library. And my dissertation was on medieval Islamic topic. I also was really engaged with interfaith outreach, mm-hmm. um, and I really wanted my scholarship to go beyond the ivory tower even before. Um, so that's why mm-hmm. I did my PhD there. But it wasn't necessarily an easy um, or smooth experience, to say the least. Um, and what do you do after a PhD? Well, you go and um, you go in the market and go for a tenure track job. And I was lucky enough to receive um, the offer and to take the job uh, even before I finished my PhD. Um, that was mm. also a very difficult process because I had just had my son, um, mm. birth to my son, and then I was on the market. Um, but that's in a nutshell. That's a bit of my academic trajectory. Yeah, yeah. So you said it was a difficult process. Tell us a little bit about that or, or give us a, a nugget, a, a story from that, if you will. Yes. Where do we start? I mean, the biggest <laughs> thing is I was a first-gen student. So I was just in graduate school because I enjoyed the process of learning. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably wasn't very efficient at it. And when I think back on it, I wonder why they didn't have any courses. They didn't teach us how to be researchers how to organize our time, you know, and and I sought out a lot of resources. I was often going to the center for, I think it was a teaching excellence. I would go Mm -hmm. to consultations, you know, so I could be really good at my TA. And then once I taught my own courses, so I was really invested in pedagogy, for example. And Mm -hmm. I went to the writing center a lot. I even went to writing center boot camps, Mm -hmm. but still I just found that there was something lacking in the mentoring uh, in terms of how to be an efficient writer, uh, how to make good use of my time, how to study, how to read a book. Uh, I just learned it on my own, uh, really. And it was a really difficult process. And I remember, um, I don't remember who it was, some professor in my program saying, you know, it's it's meant to be difficult. You're, you have to go through a hazing pro- a process so that mm. you can obtain the status that we're at. And I don't think it should be like that. I think we should offer more support and more mentoring to graduate students so that it doesn't have to be a hazing process. It can actually be more enjoyable. It can actually be a program where students receive support. Uh, So my graduate program, I must say I floundered a lot. To give an Mm -hmm. example, um, I failed my uh, PhD comprehensives the first time. Now, mm-hmm. I credit a lot of that was the Arab Spring was happening. I guess I was studying in 2011, uh, and the Arab Spring started in the early spring of 2011, and I was obsessed with with following the news of the protesters and what was going on, and, and I was so invested because I would recently moved from Egypt, and one of the big centers of the Arab Spring was in Egypt, as well as in Tunisia and elsewhere, and 
I was obsessed with Twitter and social media, mm -hmm. following everything and trying to make sure I was on top of things. And I wasn't studying enough, but I also wasn't studying for my comprehensives in a way that, you know, I, I took other people's templates for studying and I just applied it okay. to my own method, but I didn't have awareness and no one kind of gave me the, gave me guidance to tell me that maybe yeah. I need to find my own method. And so I didn't know my own method of learning. I didn't, recognize that I didn't allow myself to adapt to that so instead mm -hmm. I tried to adapt myself to other people's models for learning for studying and it didn't work mm -hmm. and I failed my first PhD comprehensive exams I did pass the second time but wow I was devastated I still remember like yes. falling apart really um and really wanted to quit that was one of many times I wanted to quit my PhD to be honest but that was a really devastating experience to just not be at the level where they thought I was prepared to um where I was not in deep enough conversation with other academics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you said there are many times that you wanted to quit. What what kept you going? I think it was my internal drive and I have a lot of grit. In general, I've been through quite a lot of hard challenges in my life, personal and professional, and I don't like to give up. When I start something that I've really invested in, um, I will pursue it to the end. And maybe this is because of my lack of understanding of the sunk cost fallacy, for example. And it's something mm. I've worked on in the past. To give you an example, uh, when I decided to quit, I have, I've, I had quite a few unfinished academic projects. Now, the past Rose would have tired herself out to complete them, including a book manuscript that was accepted by a publisher for my dissertation, mm -hmm. um, but that needed quite a bit of revision to please them. Um, the past rose would have done it. The, the current rose mm -hmm. decided not to because I would, didn't want to spend hundreds of hours or however long it would have taken to revise it to their standards on a book that wasn't relevant to what I'm doing now. Um, that okay. wouldn't really help me in anything and that wouldn't make me no money, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, so I, saw not, I decided not to do it. And there's quite a few academic projects I've left unfinished and I feel some guilt, but I'm also... Mm -hmm. Re reconciled with the fact that I've left them. Uh, but in the past, I would have done anything. I would have had sleepless nights. I would have spent however much time was needed in order to complete them. Um, mm -hmm. So I have a lot of compassion for that old Rose who who gave her all to her work. Uh, currently, I don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you mentioned that you have a lot of compassion for the old Rose. Uh, what was the process or the journey to to have that compassion? You also mentioned that you had guilt before. What was yeah. the the process to overcome that guilt or yeah. to give yourself permission, yeah. right, to not feel guilt or um, even think that you had to complete the projects that are left still left mm -hmm. unfinished? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's been a long process. It's been a long process of getting to know myself. Uh, you know, my my coaching practice is called Compassion Flow Coaching for a reason, because I want to allow people to understand how compassion can flow within us, within our lives. And it's something that I've learned along the way. And every time I kind of started on a different healing modality, you know, I, I felt so broken at a point in my mm -hmm. time. I don't feel that way anymore. I don't feel that anyone's actually broken. But for a long time, I felt broken devastated, mm -hmm. like there's nothing that can help me get better for most of my life as a young woman. And so with all these healing modalities and all these people that were inspiring me, I noticed the 
the biggest theme was compassion. Uh, when you get to know yourself, you become kinder to yourself. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about myself, it turns out. And it also turns out I was my own worst enemy. If I look back at mm. my journal, the way I spoke about myself, the things I said to myself, I had a very, very uh, cruel inner voice. You know, and it's not like I'm I'm not cured of it. You know, I still grapple with uh, sure. my inner critic and that voice, but I much have many more tools in my toolkit to grapple with her, to befriend her. Mm -hmm. um, so I found that if I'm going to be cruel to myself, if I'm going to tell all of these insults and criticisms to myself, then how can I expect anyone to treat me with dignity, dignity and respect? Um, and mm -hmm. I found that my life really changed as I grew with compassion for myself. People treated me better with more respect. Mm -hmm. um, in the past, I was just another people pleaser like many uh, many people, especially women. Um, and often in academia, this is a, a big issue. Yes. And I would do anything to receive people's approval, to make sure whoever I needed to um, please was pleased with me. Um, and I was always, you know, seeking approval for whatever committee to give me funding, to approve, mm -hmm. some, you know, application for promotion, whatever it was. And along the way, I, I just realized I didn't think of myself in that way. And I find that as I'm kinder to myself, as I learn how to give myself grace and learn how to unshame myself. It reflects in my life. For example, my son used to be, his behavior, behavior used to be quite difficult when he was younger. I mean, he was a toddler, um, but mm -hmm. as I walked this healing path, he's also changed as well. Yes. And we have our struggles, but he's also learned I've taught him vocabulary for regulating his nervous system, for example. He can express his needs. Um, he is not a people pleaser, which, you know, can be difficult to have to raise a child who has a very mm -hmm. uh, unique way of seeing the world, who's very single-minded. But it's also a pleasure to see him being so different than the way I was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Would you mind sharing a, um, an example of the language that you've taught him or mm -hmm. something that you've taught him in order to move past that? Yeah, so first of all, he's always been a stubborn child, so he will never do anything he doesn't want to do. So he he was born with that, which I don't think I was born with. I was definitely born with more of like wanting to placate people. But mm -hmm. uh, one thing that I, I'm grateful that he's learned and embraced uh, in life is learning about what it means to regulate nervous systems. So sometimes we go out and we live in Istanbul, which is a city of 16 million or more people. And there's some places mm -hmm. that are really crowded and overwhelming. And he has a bit, he can get overwhelmed. So sometimes when we're out, he'll tell me, mama, I'm feeling really overwhelmed right now. My nervous system is, is kind of out of whack. And he uses that kind of vocabulary. And so either he'll say like, can we leave? Can we like, take a break, you know, yes. um, and then we'll kind of calm down. When he comes home from school, for example, he'll say, I need my quiet time because I've been overwhelmed, overstimulated at school. He's nine years old. And can mm -hmm. I please just like, chill before we talk, for example? And so he, I'm just so proud of him for knowing himself really well and yes. for knowing to express his needs when he needs quiet time, when he needs a break from stimulation. And mm -hmm. I don't think I had that kind of knowledge um, or emotional mm -hmm. intelligence at his age, definitely not. Um, so it's it's really great to see him speaking up for his needs and demanding them from me, really. 
Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I definitely love that, that you've given him the tools mm-hmm. uh, to be able to speak and, and also have the autonomy and, and the agency to say what he needs and yes. to not, yeah. And, and to unapologetically say what he needs, right. Uh, if he needs the space or the time to, to yeah. just decompress. I love that. I definitely love that. And I know that that's something that we don't necessarily hear often, especially in mm-hmm. academic spaces, yes. right? So where we give ourselves not only permission, but um, the do it without the shame mm-hmm. um, of saying, this is what I need, or I need to take a break, or I have too much on my plate right now, and this mm-hmm. writing project is not exactly. going to get done. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I love, I love that you're giving him those tools as well. And you're also sharing with our listeners some of these mm-hmm. tools mm-hmm. that they can use in their own toolbox. Yeah. So is this something that you had to learn about yourself, especially through the academic journey? Is learning to regulate my nervous system? Yes. Yeah, of course. Yes. It's something that, you know, when I meet young, younger people, you know, Gen Z and, and younger millennials, I'm, I, I'm in the elder millennial category. Um, when I meet people in their 20s, early 30s, I'm like, wow, I'm so impressed by their awareness of mental health. Yes. Um, that I didn't have that vocabulary when I was that age and our age difference isn't that big. Um, but when I was in high school and college and grad school, I don't remember hearing vocabulary about mental health, about embodiment, about nervous system regulation. That no. was not part of my everyday vocabulary. All we did was think about theory and writing papers and like there was nothing else. Like our bodies, ourselves didn't matter. We were just scholars and people of the mind. Yes. Right. So that was the way I was, ex- that's the way I lived my graduate student experience. I wasn't aware of my own. Uh, body. I neglected a lot of my physical needs. You know, I, I, I've been a vegetarian for most of my life, so I did eat fairly healthfully. Um, I did do some exercise, but there was a lot of things mm-hmm. I neglected. I didn't move enough, for example. Yes. And I was in prime of my youth. You know, I sh- this should have been time to do a lot of activities, a lot of sports, but I wasn't doing mm-hmm. that much biking here and there, walking here and there, but not mm-hmm. enough, right? And I didn't know anything about my, my nervous system. I didn't know about anxiety, which now I realize I had huge amounts of anxiety. Yes. I didn't learn that until I decided to step into therapy um, and to seek help from a variety of different healers, coaches, um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. professionals, really. And it took a lot of work and a lot of support from a village of people um, who taught me these skills. And then, um, you know, during COVID, I, I started doing intense trainings because we're at home. Yeah. And so I could take lots of trainings online. And so this has been a process of really intentionally doing this work maybe for the past five years. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then COVID, when, it, when I had more time and space to really uh, take a good look at my life and to assess everything and to really put emphasis on rest and my personal goals. Mm-hmm. It was in 2019, I think it was, when I, I have this mentor who leads a group of people um, through a life vision process every uh, year at the end of the year. And so we assess our past year and we plan for our future year. Now, in all the past years, I, all my goals were professional. You know, get tenure, mm. right? book you know they're all uh, do these conferences but that year was the first year where I realized almost all my goals were personal it was healing it was connecting with friends and family spending more time with my son going to nature more and I didn't even realize until I finished my plan for that year that it was personal 
Um, mm -hmm. And that really helped me realize that my prairies were no longer uh, my job. My life was more than my job and I wasn't my job, yes. even though my entire identity was wrapped around being a professor, being around an academic. And that point helped me realize I needed to recalibrate and change my priorities in life. Mm -hmm. What was that recalibration like? I imagine that there, there was some trepidation a bit, yeah. right? Yeah, so what was that like? Yeah, so when that happened, that was like end of 2019 when I kind of, came to that realization that I received tenure a few months later, maybe two months later. Um, it was funny because when I received tenure, that's the pinnacle of success for an academic. You can yes. relax. You don't have to worry about being fired anymore. You're secure in a job. And that actually, instead of making me feel secure in my job and wanting to stay, it made me realize that like, what have, been, what have I just spent the past six, six and a half years mm -hmm. doing? And for what purpose? Like I sacrificed so many hours of ignoring my son, for example, I'd be on the computer working late, you know, doing grading, preparing for class, uh, writing yes. papers, preparing for conferences. Well, he was like, mama, 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 and like, wasn't getting enough attention, right? And I was doing so much of that, right? I sacrificed everything else. Mm -hmm. So instead of being excited about tenure, it actually led me on the path to eventually quitting, <laughs> you can say. And then what happened is I got tenure, I think it was February, I got the announcement or the notification. And then that was February 2020. And then COVID happened and everyone's life mm -hmm. changed due to COVID and the pandemic and staying home. And when I had space, more space, it was quite magical. Now the beginning was awful. I was trying to help support my kindergartner son, you know, through pandemic, but he had dyslexia and he was not able to read or write. And the teachers were very frustrated and I didn't know what to do because I was trying to teach in the other room. And you know, he'd be coming in shirtless. <laughs> it was just chaos, as many parents can relate, trying to teach or trying to support my son. And that was really awful. In that fall, I was able to take medical leave, reduce medical leave. And I just taught one or two classes and I had time. We went hiking. We just went. The only thing you could do back then was go into nature. There was nowhere else to go. Even the beaches were closed in California during the pandemic. But we found some trails where we could go. And um then the year after 2021 is when we came to Istanbul for one year, supposedly, for a sabbatical. <laughs> and I learned how to connect with my body, learn what I needed, learn to hone my intuition, listen to my inner wisdom, learn to give mm -hmm. my body and mind what it needs and to listen really closely. Mm -hmm. uh, that's part of the process that happened along the way that made me recalibrate and realize that I had different priorities in life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So spirituality and religion are pillars in your life mm -hmm. as well. And they're they're integrated in your scholarship as well. Yeah. What's the most profound spiritual moment um, of your life? Oh, my God. That's, that is a hard question that I wasn't prepared for. The most profound spiritual moment in my life. Yeah, spirituality is, is integrated in your work. It's integrated in your it scholarship. Is. I mean... So when I was 11 years old, I went to this conference. I grew up in San Francisco, California, which was a great city to explore the world without leaving the city back then. Maybe not anymore. And when I was 11, the Dalai Lama came for a week-long, was it a convention or something? And every day they had this special gathering of youth. And we got to spend time with the Dalai Lama and ask him questions. It was a very small gathering. 
And that moment, that week really affected me a lot in um, mm -hmm. being interested in spirituality and religion. From that time, I've been studying and exploring different religious traditions. Um, San Francisco has so many different religious communities. So I remember up and through high school, visiting many of them, asking questions of all the leaders and teachers I met. Um, I don't know if I have one most profound moment because every moment is can be a profound spiritual moment. Yes. And I was... Here, what I did learn, what maybe is very profound for me now, is that I chose to study religion uh, in a secular university environment. Uh, my bachelor's degree and mm, PhD mm -hmm. were in public universities uh, in Canada and the U.S., and my master's degree was in a secular private university in Egypt. And mm -hmm. it turns out that if you're someone who's on this healing spiritual path, it might not be the best place to go into a second university where you actually learn to deconstruct religion and spirituality. Yes. It was actually very difficult as someone who's a uh, practicing Muslim, someone who's deeply spiritual, actually to go to my graduate seminars and then you need to use a dead white man, your dead white men's theories mm -hmm. to deconstruct my own religion. That was really harmful, actually. It took many years. Mm -hmm. I'm probably still healing from that process, even though the analytical tools I gained from that process, uh, I am deeply grateful that I have, and it gives me a very different mm -hmm. way of looking at the world that others might not necessarily have. It made me, it left me very open-minded. Um, but now I realize, looking back, that it probably wasn't the place where I fit in. That's why now what I've done is I've taken my academic background in religion and spirituality, and I found mm -hmm. where I fit. And I love being among people who are coaches, healers, doing all the woo stuff, you know, because I'm a little, I'm from California, <laughs> the Bay Area. I'm pretty woo, but I call it analytical woo and that I like peer-reviewed woo, you know. <laughs> so I like practicing modalities that do have some scientific uh, research, right? Yes. So almost finished my certification to become a breathwork facilitator mm -hmm. and uh, my main teacher is a is a medical doctor and mm -hmm. breathwork has been proven by many different researchers and yes. institutions around the world that it actually is very effective in increasing our well-being for example so there's some modalities that i'm not really interested in and the ones that i'm really most likely to embrace are the ones that have some sort of mm -hmm. um, scientific or peer-reviewed um, backup so yes I found it really profound in the past that um, as a Muslim, I was searching for a spiritual guide and I had uh, given my loyalty to a couple of them along the way, men, of course, because mm -hmm. it's almost always male spiritual mm -hmm. guides in most traditions, not just in Islam. Um, something that's happened um, in the past few years is I realized I don't need a spiritual guide anymore. And a lot of people say you have to, or you'll be lost and you'll never find the way. But what I yes. found is that I have enough support around me, enough people, um, often almost all women, a village where I live and also friends around the world who I can tap into and, and converse with on a regular basis who can keep me grounded, who can keep me balanced by checking in with each other, by keeping each other accountable, by running through any thoughts or difficulties. So one it's not a specific experience, but it's a revelation mm -hmm. really of realizing that mm -hmm. Um, first of all, I fit my my passion for religion and spirituality fits somewhere. It just fits really well where I am now. Um, and that we can support one another as women on this path. And we don't necessarily need a man to guide us. And that for me is really profound because I really thought I was broken and that I needed someone to 
say some prayer to do something and magically I'd be better. Yes. It turns out, and there's a saying in, in Arabic, it says, man yarf nafso yarf rabbo, whoever, and I'll make it feminine, whoever knows herself knows her Lord, knows her God. Mm. The idea mm -hmm. that I, I used to say this, I love this quote, and I used to say it all the time, but I don't think I really understood what it meant. But what I see it meaning now is that I've got to spend time knowing this amazing body, this amazing being that I was given to respect it, to um, offer it um, gratitude. And then mm -hmm. the more I get to know myself, that is the path to God and the divine. Um, and mm -hmm. so this is a relations I've experienced that for me has been very profound in my life. Yes. Yes. All that you're speaking about. Absolutely. I love everything that you're saying about this, especially the relationship aspect, because, and tell me if I'm wrong or correct me, um, this, this idea of relationship that you're talking about with, with now these women that support you mm -hmm. and you, you can lean on and go to for conversation and healing and all of those, that's not necessarily what you got in academia, right? So the relationship aspect is also different. Whereas in academic spaces, it's it's sometimes isolating. Um, yes. And it's a lot of competition most times, but yes. now that through this healing journey, right? So the relationship, the relational aspect is very integral in yes. your healing process as well. 100%. And, you know, I, I'm a natural introvert. Uh, and I was very shy growing up. And in graduate school, I was really reserved. And, and I was also in an abusive marriage with a man who was quite controlling and didn't really allow me to socialize much. So I didn't really socialize with a lot of people. I was also quite uh, in my religious practice now, look, I kind of stayed away from a lot of people just for various reasons. Um, you know, I didn't go to parties, I, I didn't drink, mm -hmm. and I still don't drink, you know, but I, I didn't want to engage in regular graduate student life, you know. Um, I'm yes. a little different now in that I'm, I'm much more open because of my healing process, right? Um, but it was an incredibly isolating experience where it was just me and my ex-husband at that time, and I didn't have a lot of close friends. I mean, there's women in my life, but I wasn't able to open up to them. And yeah, in graduate school, it was it was all one-upmanship. It was like, who's smarter? Who can drop more names of dead white men theorists, for example? And yes. I tried, but it just wasn't my thing, you know? I, I, I thought I was not smart enough, but really, I just wasn't, my passion wasn't in that specific mm -hmm. My passion was doing something else with the material we were studying. And so now mm -hmm. I feel like I'm really thriving. And yeah, it's absolutely amazing. As I open up and, and become more myself on this path, all these people, either, both from my past, have come back and we've kind of rekindled relationships on a deeper level. Mm -hmm. and all these new people have come into my life in the past years, and I've been able to cultivate these deep, profound uh, relationships yes. with other women um, where we support one another. Um, and I also just have, uh, you know, among friends, but I also have um, healers I can go to, coaches I can go to when I know who I can go to for whatever situation I'm faced. It's just amazing to have a toolkit that's really um, vibrant. And I have a list, you know, of all the things I know that support me when I have specific challenges in my life. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. having a community of women that for me is actually a global because I have friends all the way, you know, around the U.S., Canada, Japan, European countries. Uh, people keep coming out of the woodwork as I build up this community of women on this who are part of this quiet revolution. And specifically, you know, I work with any woman, but specifically I've been fostering a community of Muslim women who are a little bit 
um, who are marginalized, who are misfits, who don't really belong to the mainstream in terms of our ideas and interpretations, they're coming out of the woodwork and I've been meeting and cultivating friendships and connecting women from around the world with similar um, perspectives has been empowering and amazing to see them connect with one another as well. Yes. Yes. And that resonates so deeply with me because some of my academic experience as through grad school, and I think a lot of us for sure are introverts <laughs> and we would just rather be with our books or computers yeah. and writing whatever we need to write. Yeah. So a lot of that resonates with me as well mm-hmm. and being uh, more so on the out the outside, right? Yeah. Um, in the margins, if you will. Yes. And mm-hmm. not really connecting. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing from from my experiences and in, in hearing yours as well. I think that's a common thread and think that's mm-hmm. one that's, that one, we need to find a way to connect mm-hmm. with others um, and, and others that are doing similar work, others mm-hmm. that resonate with you, others that, that continue to fill your cup, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Not those that drain you, but those exactly. that add to you, those that celebrate you yeah. uh, and your genius, right? Because our zones of genius are are all different and we all mm-hmm. think differently. and we, we all thrive in a different mm-hmm. place. And for some of us, it is being in a more quieter space, mm-hmm. um, you know, not in the limelight or competing mm-hmm. or all of that. Um, but there are ways that we can all thrive. Mm-hmm. And and it's in the collective, in the community yeah. that you're also speaking about that yeah. this happens. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. So that definitely resonates with me. And I know it'll resonate on a deep level mm-hmm. with our listeners as well, because a lot of us are 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 feeling these these things that you've felt mm-hmm. and are experiencing these same experiences. Yeah. Yes. Now, as you're talking about these dead white men, <laughs> uh, and and I know that um, you you've dropped in some nuggets of of decolonizing the space for you. But what does that look like now? The 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 decolonization of um, of what was ingrained right through the mm-hmm. academic studies through grad school, reading these these dead white men, and also mm-hmm. talking about spirituality, but also for your practice now with yeah, um, yeah with women that yeah. you're that you're looking to cultivate relationships. That's a huge and wonderful question. I love that question. Um, so first of all, like because I'm actually wrapping up an academic book project. So there's one project that I committed to because it was so close that I'm finishing up. And when I think about decolonizing my writing, my academic writing, which this is the last piece of academic writing I might ever do, who knows, maybe in the future I'll return to it. (laughs) But really being conscious about who I'm quoting, who I'm citing, right? There's a big issue among uh, in Islamic studies. Uh, There's a scholar named Keisha Ali at Boston University who has been writing some scholarship about women not being cited or recognized within our subfield of Islamic studies. And so being really intentional about citing more women, more people of color in this book, Mm -hmm. I've cited everyone I could think of. There's probably people I've missed out because, you know, I haven't, it's been a couple years since I like updated most of the book, but I'm hoping until the year I completed it, I included uh, everyone who needs to be cited. Uh, so that's yeah. my academic work. Um, and also when I was a professor, you know, the syllabus was so important. The syllabi were so important. The way I wrote who Absolutely. I included. And, you know, I'm, I'm a, I was a professor of Islam. And so there's a lot of uh, uh, scholars who aren't Muslim, who are kind of white men writing about Islam. But I really was intentional mm-hmm. in making sure that I had a lot of voices from within uh, by Muslim scholars, by women, by people of color mm-hmm. um, is really important. So as I have transitioned into my coaching world, really I'm 
like you said, I'm serving women. Um, occasionally men come to me for coaching. I do work with men. I have no issues uh, supporting men, um, but primarily it's women who gravitate towards my work. Yes. So what I found interesting, even in my uh, process of getting certified as a coach, in receiving all my different training and healing modalities, almost always um, the people are from kind of Anglo-Christian backgrounds mm -hmm. in a way. Um, for my breathwork certification, I decided to find somewhere outside the U.S. And also mm -hmm. I found, I moved here to Turkey, to Istanbul, because I wanted to move away from the West. I wanted to see what life is like here. And I've lived in Egypt and a number of other countries in the Middle East mm -hmm. and um, nearby. And even living here, to me, felt a little bit decolonizing in a way because it was really tiring to be treated as an object of curiosity all the time because mm. of my address, um, because I'm Muslim. And for people to always ask me silly questions, to have to represent 1.8 billion people, which is absurd. That, and most American Muslims can relate to this. We have like a script. People ask, instead of treating us as like regular human beings, we're treated as like the source of Q&A for all things Islam. You can't just be in a grocery store buying, you know, fruit and vegetables. You have to be like, can you tell me why they hate us? Can you tell me why you're wearing those exotic clothing? And, and we all have answers, mm. right? So, People say, why are you wearing those exotic clothing? And I'd be like, you know, I, I shop at TJ Maxx. I don't know what you're talking about. I just take clothes that I buy in the U.S. and make them modest, you know. But they yes. see Muslims as such this foreign um, object um, that's so exotic. And, and we're not. Um, people say, where are you from? I'm like, well, I'm from San Francisco. And they're like, they're waiting yeah. for something else. I'm like, San Francisco, like, not Syria, right? They're waiting for, for to hear um, that we're so different than other Americans, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that was really tiring. And actually there's quite a few other Western Muslims who've moved here and elsewhere outside the US because mm -hmm. we could relax here. I'm not just a, I'm not a Muslim woman wearing a hijab walking down the street here. I'm just another woman here, you know? And it's really mm -hmm. a big relief. Um, so when I went for my breathwork certification, I decided to take it with a program in South Africa. So the program is called Breathwork mm. Africa. The teacher is of Indian descent and many of her inspiration is from South African, other African indigenous um, teachings yes. that she integrates into mm -hmm. her teaching. And it was, even though she is still working on decolonizing her practice because all of her teachers were white men, because in the breathwork world, um, <laughs> that always happens. Yeah. It was as close as I could get to um, decolonizing like my study of the breath work, right? But even all the books I have in the bookshelf are almost all white men on the breath, for example. Yes. So what I've found that I can do is that I can learn all these things from these sources and then I translate it, right? So mm -hmm. I'm, I've been learning different healing modalities like breath work, like mindfulness, like somatic practices, yes. often ones that um, Muslims might not necessarily uh, study on their own. And so what mm -hmm. I do is I translate it to a Muslim audience and I show people how it actually matches some um, practices that we already have within Islam um, that mm -hmm. are already part mm -hmm. of our Islamic ritual practice. And so yes. I integrate it into and I integrate and I've been formulating my own approach to embodiment and breath work with, from Islamic perspective, with Islamic language. And it's really resonated with a lot of the people I've worked with. Um, mm -hmm showing them i've done some research about the breath in islam and sufism mm -hmm. islamic spirituality that this has always been an important practice it's been lost because of modernity because mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. puritanical approaches to islam and so i i see myself as trying to revive 
these older practices, but also bringing in things that benefit us from outside Islam, like breath work, like mindfulness, and um, finding a useful way that Muslims can approach full embodiment and presence while also um, finding ways to get closer to God. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And through this talk on decolonization, right? So uh, my mentor, academic mentor, uh, Kakali Bhattacharya, she was one of the first to say you need to cite people who look like your your co your participants or your co-creators or the people you're talking about. You need to cite black people. You need yeah. to cite black women. Mm -hmm. You know, you need to be bringing in these voices. Uh, so that was one of the first times in grad school, mm -hmm. right, that I had heard that during my PhD, not even in my master's. Yeah, so during my PhD, and it was through her right, coming from this decolonial perspective. Mm -hmm. But you don't hear that very often. And that, yeah, and that is something that really, really that I try to continue mm -hmm. to tell my own students, mm -hmm. right? So you need to be citing people, especially in this dissertation, because this is a living mm -hmm. document. People are going to pick this up. You need to continue to cite people who look like the people that you are trying to talk about, the exactly. people that you are trying to highlight. You need to highlight these voices mm -hmm. in your scholarship and continue to do that. And it is a practice. It is something that you need to be very mindful about mm -hmm. because there are so, as you said, so many people, so many white men that are that are creating these works and, mm -hmm. and their names are on these publications and these things that we are reading, but it is from their perspective. Everything is filtered mm -hmm. from your mind and your perspective, and then that's how it's getting filtered. Yeah. So it is very important mm -hmm. to cite and to read. And then I love that you're taking it a step further and that you're also then translating it back mm -hmm. to the thing that matters and the thing that you need <clears throat> need to be um, highlighting for your own community, for mm -hmm. your group of people. Because mm -hmm. it's very important as well that right through breathwork, this isn't new. Mm -hmm. This isn't new work, right? So ancestrally, this was done ancestrally, mm -hmm. right? The spiritual ways of being and knowing and healing practices, yeah. these things are not new, mm -hmm. right? It is just that it's being revived, but mm -hmm. we reach back and revive them in the way that mm -hmm. it is ancestrally uh, congruent for us. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I love that you are then taking that and, and reaching back to revive mm -hmm. Yes, and integrate those ancestral practices, those spiritual practices, mm -hmm. those healing practices to say, yes, this is this is um, modern. Mm -hmm. However, this is not something that hasn't been mm -hmm. done before and something that we can't situate mm -hmm. within our own context. Exactly. And I do find it really important in my coaching work is building community. And I'm building communities of Muslim women from around the world, as well as locally in Istanbul. I have a community of a healing circle of women from different backgrounds, not just Muslim, that I organize here. And I find that I love collaboration, which academics mm -hmm. are, you know, like there's a mixed bag about collaboration. I'm a collaborative person. I thrive in yeah. collaboration. And sometimes it's very lonely to be a coach working at home from my mm -hmm. home office. And I've been, um, you know, 
I'm leading a retreat this weekend in person outside of Istanbul with a friend um, yes. who's a co-chair. And I love doing things with other women and I like to uplift them and help them do it as well. You know, like right now I'm working with a dear Turkish friend who um, on the process of unshaming ourselves together. And I'm also encouraging her um, as she becomes a coach to start being an unshaming coach for Turkish women, right? So all the things I do, it resonates. And, and you know, she. I hope that she's going to go off and start working in speaking in Turkish with Turkish women to learn these uh, new ways of approaching, understanding cultural conditioning and shame, uh, which is a big deal here in Turkey and how women are conditioned. Um, so I just love collaboration and I'm always speaking to different women, like what can we do to support one another, to uplift each other, to let each other's uh, voices and, and opinions get um, mm -hmm. Um, to be more uh, known around the world. Uh, so this is one of my biggest passions, you know, is helping other women um, lift up their projects as well, their thoughts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm so glad we were able to connect yeah. because you know that I, my, my thing is it it's the collective. We can't do this work alone. Exactly. It is the collective that's going to create the well-being mm -hmm. movement that we're looking for. Yeah. So I'm so glad we were able to collaborate and connect. And this will not be our last time, I'm sure, having yeah. a conversation or collaborating on a project. Yes. Before we sign off, I have a couple of things that I want to do. One thing is we have this segment called Off the Cuff. And it's where someone submits a really random question. Um, and we just ask you a random question, right? So it, it, you've shared so many nuggets and so many things with us. But we do have a question from Tiffany, and she's actually in California as well. And her question is, um, what's one idea that you think the majority of people get wrong in academia? She means people who work within academia. That's one thing I get wrong. Interpret it any way you want. <laughs> you know, I always talk about this topic, and maybe for people who've listened to me elsewhere, they say, oh, she always talks about this, but it's so important is that we're not just our minds. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the way that people are often in this competition, as we discussed before, about, oh, I'm smarter than you, I, I know more theorists than you, my analysis is sharper than you. Um, it's all about the yes. mind. And we're full human beings, and I don't think academics realize that. So I think what they get wrong is the fact that they think we're just our minds. And I used to think I was just my mind, and we're not. And we need to treat each other with our full humanity. Um, we need to treat each other um, and understand that we all have our full beings, that we have to realize that we have bodies as well as minds, and they need equal uh, consideration and equal um, equal treatment. And so that when we work, if for people who remain in academia, obviously I've left, but for people who remain in academia, if you neglect your body, if you, if you neglect your personal life, uh, there's no point in having a professional academic life either. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they also get wrong that you shouldn't dedicate your entire um, existence to your job. You're not your job. Yes. And even though you being a professor is, you know, gives you a lot of social capital and you've worked really hard to it, are not your job and I think that's also really important yes absolutely very important nugget you are not your job when you are gone you will be replaced yes exactly. for sure exactly. for sure so let me ask you this before and I said this was the last but, but let me ask you this um and that leads me to a question so when it's all said and done 
-hmm. you know, since you're not your job and you will be replaced and all of these things. What's the thing that you want to be known for? What's what's the legacy that you want to leave? I love that question. I've actually thought about legacy a lot. Um, one of my biggest mentors who helped me transition into this new life is Carrie Ann Rockamore. Maybe you know her. Yes. Uh, she's been so inspiring to me. And um, we talked about a lot about legacy um, together. And I think for me, you know, my business is called Compassion Flow Coaching, and I speak about compassion all the time. So if people remember me as someone who had compassion for myself and others, that would make me incredibly happy. I try, you know, maybe sometimes I'm not as compassionate as I could be, but every day I try more. And if people can remember me as someone who had that, who embodied that, um, mm -hmm. who embodied good character, I was a decent human being who tried my best to be uh, good to people, at least good to people who are good to me, um, who was good with her boundaries and respecting myself and others around me. I would love for that to be part of my legacy. And if I supported women and others along the way to also do the same, well, that would be the most amazing legacy is for other women to um, follow something similar, a similar path. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, I love that. We have this one life to live mm -hmm. and you should do it and do it well. Yes. Yeah. I follow in, in the Quran, there's a, a verse that for me is the most transformative verse. It says, God says, I only created humans to worship me. Now, I used to interpret that worship is actually praying. But now I realize that worship is everything. Everything I do is an act of service, is an act of worship. So I try to live my life as much as I can be mindful about that everything I'm doing is for the higher intention, for the higher good. Yes. And so I hope that I am doing that and I leave that behind. Absolutely. And the, we can talk all day about this. But one other thing is, right, so that reminded me of, um, also it's in the Bible, is to mm -hmm. be fruitful and multiply, mm -hmm. right? So through our works, yep. what are you producing? Yes. Exactly. And then how are you, how is it multiplying? Mm -hmm. What are you leaving for others mm -hmm. to carry on? Because we're not here to just take, take, take. Mm -hmm. We're here to do and to produce. Exactly. And for others to then go on to be fruitful, mm -hmm. right? So planting seeds in others yeah. as well. So then we can multiply. Mm -hmm. And that also leads to the well-being movement that mm -hmm. we're that we're looking to um we're looking to to create here. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I, I have enjoyed, thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. But before we sign off, how can we support you? How can we find you? Um, what are you working on? Yeah, right now um, I'm planning a couple of retreats. Like I said, this weekend I'm going to lead my first in-person retreat in Turkey. Um, obviously, no one can sign up for that. End of July, I'm leading another retreat um, for people in Turkey, a couple hours outside of Istanbul. Um, and I offer one-on-one -on -one coaching services for any uh, woman. I mean, man can sign up too, but mostly women sign up with me if they want to work through any challenges they're um, they're going through, if they want to get unblocked, if they want to learn about embodiment. I work with a lot of academics on teaching them embodiment, how to feel safe in your body, how to listen uh, to your body and speak to your body is powerful and it takes time and work to do that. These are all things I can support people with. I also do group coaching, uh, sometimes uh, just for Muslims, sometimes for any woman, depending on kind of whatever I'm offering at the time. So they can follow me. Uh, my website is compassionflow.com. My Instagram account is, I think, Dr. Rose Aslan. Uh, my Facebook, the same one, Dr. Rose Aslan, or they can find me on regular Facebook, uh, Rose Aslan, too. Yes, yes. And all of 
uh, Dr. Rose's information will be in the show notes, so you can just click the button and find her there as well. As we end our time, thank you for listening and watching. Please subscribe to this show, share it with a friend, leave a review or a five-star rating, and follow us on social media. If you have an idea for a show or would like to be a guest on the podcast, then reach out to us at hello at cnnslate.com.